Well, it's a joy to bring the Word of God to you this morning, and I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning as we begin. Ephesians chapter 4. The elders have asked that I preach the next couple of weeks on church membership, and so we're going to be looking at a number of passages uh, over these two weeks to help us understand the significance of the local church, and there really is no greater theme to fix our minds on, even at this time where we rejoice specifically and think primarily about the resurrection of Christ, than the church. The church gathered, the local church, through the last 2,000 years happens because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The church exists because Jesus Christ ascended to the Father and because Jesus sent the Spirit to build His church, to glorify His name as His people await for His return. On Tuesday, Pastor Don preached about the being filled with the Spirit of God that we are called as believers to be filled with the Spirit of God so that we can practice unity in the church, so that we can uh, gather together and so that we can interact in a way that brings honor and glory to God and glorifies Christ as we await His return. In chapter 4, is where we find that command that we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we're going to pick up our reading this morning here in verse 7 as Paul continues to describe how that takes place. Christ gives gifts to the church because He ascended. He gives gifts to the church so that the church is built up, so that we are matured in a knowledge of Christ, learning to speak the truth to one another in love. And so we'll read beginning in verse 7 down through verse 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives And he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, 
joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When the church gathers, when we interact with one another, when we encourage one another, when we build one another up, when we have to exhort one another or even rebuke one another in speaking the truth in love, all of this is the direct result of Christ ascending, of Christ sending his spirit, of Christ gifting the members of the body to work together, to grow to maturity as we await the coming of Jesus Christ. The church is a glorious institution. It is the institution that God has ordained as we await the new heavens and the new earth. And so it is so important that we take time to understand the scriptural teaching of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, that we might contribute according to the will of God and in dependence on the Spirit of God. So why is it that we are taking the next two Sundays to consider this theme of church membership? Well, there are several reasons by way of introduction this morning. We're taking this time because the church is the appointed institution to hold up the doctrine of Christ. We'll look at this passage a little bit later, but in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth, and then he gives a confession of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church when Peter confessed Christ. And we find in the New Testament how Jesus fulfills his word and continues to fulfill his word. We're also spending this time over the next couple of weeks because many of you have expressed how important the church is to you and your commitment to the church. And you've asked good questions about commitment. A couple of weeks ago, we had a really profitable uh, leadership meeting, and a couple of questions came up about church membership from, from our members. And as the understanding of the weight of what it means to be a member of a local body of Christ continues to be cultivated in our understanding, it's important to encourage one another in the significance of what this means and how it works out. And, you know, as I look around and, and see so many of you who are members, who have been members, who are committed and love the church, uh, part of the desire behind these two Sundays is to uh, encourage you in your love for the church and build you up in your love for Christ. It's just su such a wonderful privilege week after week to see your commitment to gather with Christ, to see your commitment to interact with one another throughout the week, to build one another up. And we desire that you are encouraged in your commitment to the church of Christ as you grow in your understanding about that. There's another reason to spend time thinking about church membership. The significance of the local church has been compromised in Western thinking. We've imported a democratic view into the church 
We've imported a consumeristic view into the church. And Jesus, when he said, I will build my church, he also said that the gates of hell will not conquer it, but that doesn't mean that they won't try. And they continue to try. Satan continues to oppose the church of God. Satan continues to seek to overthrow the truth of the gospel and to sow seeds of of divisiveness and destruction within the body. We are engaged in warfare. And Satan does this oftentimes through persecution, but he also does it through times of prosperity when we become comfortable and at ease. And so we're thankful that over the last several decades, there has been a resurgence in expositional preaching and going back to the Scriptures and asking what the Scriptures say. But as we look at the Scriptures passage by passage, there are implications that start to arise. For example... The preeminence of Christ begins to dawn on our understanding. Jesus, in in John chapter 5, in verses 37 through 47, speaks to the religious leaders of the day who are very interested in the Scriptures. They know the Scriptures. Jesus even says to them, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you will find eternal life. These are people that are orthodox. They're going to the Scriptures for eternal life. But then Jesus indicts those religious leaders because they're missing the point of Scripture, Him. He says, and they, the Scriptures, are what give testimony to me. And you've missed it. So as we turn to Scriptures and as we week by week, understand the point of Scripture, there's, a, there's the implication that the, of the reality. Christ is the central figure of the Scriptures. Christ is preeminent. But another implication that we find in the New Testament in particular is the priority of the local church. The New Testament assumes that the followers of Christ will be committed to a local church. And you can see this at the beginning of a number of the epistles. In 1 Corinthians 1, for example, in verse 2, Paul writes, "...to the church of God that is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints together with all those who in every place..." call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He addresses the letter to the church, and the church consists of those who have been sanctified in Christ, those who have been set apart by redemption in Jesus Christ. And so he's writing to a local church that consists of individuals who have been regenerated by the saving work of Jesus Christ. And he also identifies them as a part of the broader body of Christ, the part of all those everywhere who call upon the name of Christ. But we see in this this one passage 
There's this element of many Christians everywhere, but then they're collected into local assemblies. And the local church is the local expression of the redemptive work of Christ as people who are redeemed come together to glorify the Lord. And we would see in Galatians as well, same, same thing as Paul begins the letter to the Galatians. He's writing to a, a region, and so he uses the plural in verse 2 of chapter 1. He, just, he says, to the churches of Galatia. I'm not writing to individuals. I'm writing to individuals who are in churches. There is the implication of the priority of the local church. And I won't rehash this, but if you missed Tuesday night service, make the time to go back and listen to that. Because in that message, Pastor Don demonstrated for us that that being filled with the Spirit, as believers were indwelt by the Spirit, were sealed by the Spirit, but then were commanded to live under the influence of the Spirit. And the reason that we're commanded to live under the influence of the Spirit is to glorify God and maintaining the unity of the, of the church. So being filled with the Spirit has a corporate emphasis for the local church. And sadly, the New Testament priority of the local church has been hijacked by seeker-sensitive philosophies. It's been hijacked by a focus on individual Christian experience. You know, it's all about how I feel It's all about having some kind of spiritual experience that makes me feel good and makes me feel, feel spiritual. It's been hijacked also. The priority of the local church has been hijacked by treating church like a spectator sport. And some churches in our area literally mimic spectator sports for their church services. It's heinous. Treating church like a spectator sport or a consumer choice. What church do I want to go to? Like, what hardware store do I want to go to? Lowe's doesn't have what I want. I'm going to go to Home Depot. It's a consumer mentality. Church is not a place that you go to check a box and leave to live life how you want. That is not the New Testament picture of the church. There is a corporate aspect of being in Christ, and that corporate aspect of being in Christ carries ramifications for your personal accountability, and it carries ramifications even for what is happening in your household. Turn over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is fleshing out instructions for Timothy, who is a pastor of the church in Ephesus. 
And one of the things that Timothy is told to do at the end of the chapter in verses 24 through 26, Paul tells Timothy, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Paul is telling Timothy, there are people, there are people in, in your midst who, who are opposing the gospel, who are opposing the truth, and those people have been captured by the devil to do his will. Timothy, you have a responsibility to teach those people and to lead them toward repentance. They're accountable, they're accountable for their deviation from the truth. Timothy, your, your responsibility is to teach them. And, and the ramifications of this are significant. They're, they're captured by the devil. They're under the devil's influence. Instead of people that are spirit-filled and under the influence of the Spirit of God, they're under the influence of the devil. They've been entrapped by the doctrines of demons. Timothy, teach them if perchance God would give them repentance. And as a side note to this passage, let me just point out that repentance is not something that you generate in and of yourself. And so when the conviction of the Spirit of God comes, leading you to repentance, do not harden yourself. That is a gift of God. It comes from God. And to resist it, there is no guarantee that there will be other opportunities. God gives repentance. In chapter 3, as Paul is helping Timothy work through the various challenges of ministry, he tells him that there, hard, there will be hard times and then gives a list of what people will be like but in verse 6, he says, Out of these kind of people are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Paul is aware and he wants Timothy to be aware of what's happening in households. And in Titus... Chapter 1, we see the same thing. If you just turn in your Bible, maybe a page or two to Titus. Titus chapter 1, verse 11. Starting in verse 10, this is part of the responsibility of those who are appointed as elders. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And we're just showing by way of introduction 
That again, the corporate aspect of being part of the body of Christ, it carries ramifications for your personal accountability and even for what is happening in your household. Paul is aware that there is false teaching that has infiltrated households and created all kinds of chaos. So again, as we're thinking about the priority of the church, the New Testament priority of the church. We understand that God ordains spiritual protection and preparation for Christ's return to happen through the local church. How are we protected from the wiles of the devil? How are we protected from the prince of the power of the air? How are we protected from the one who energizes this world system that is organized against the kingdom of God and against Jesus Christ? God ordains spiritual protection and preparation for Christ's return. That's where we're going. We're waiting for Christ to return. He's alive. He rose, he ascended, he reigns, and he's returning. And we're preparing for his return. And God has ordained that preparation to happen through the local church. Christ, Christ established the local church to prepare you and those around you for one inevitable There's one inevitable event in your existence, and that is that you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that for a moment. We have a lot of plans for this week, right? Those plans, those plans depend on whether or not the Lord wills if we should live. But folks, there's one inevitable event in your existence, and that is that one day you're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ established the local church not conferences, not seminars, the local church, not activities, not parties, not shopping, not sports, the local church to prepare you for that one inevitable day when you will stand before Christ. R.C. Sproul And his little book, Saved from What, makes this observation. We have a tendency to forget that the goal of our whole lives points beyond the grave. We sing the gospel song, This world is not my home, I'm just passing through. But as we pass through this life, we often let our gaze wander away from our goal. We cling tenaciously to this life as if it were better than what lies ahead. That's convicting for all of us, isn't it? Well, the theme that we're going to work with this morning is that the church matters, or the church is precious to, or the church is important to, all of those words work. The church matters to those purchased by Christ. The church matters to those purchased by Christ. And the church, the church is made up 
of those who are justified by faith in Christ alone, redeemed by his blood. They've turned to Christ for, in repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. They're resting in the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ. That is their only plea. And they are sealed with the indwelling Spirit of God. And so if you have not turned to Christ, if you are still in your sins, you're not part of the church. You're outside of Christ. And the Scripture, Christ invites you, offers, extends the invitation, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And those who, who turn to Christ, they are declared by God to be righteous. They're justified on the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ, on the perfect work of Christ, His perfect righteousness, His perfect sacrifice for your sins. The work is done. When you put your faith in Christ, your standing is changed from, from a, a child of the devil to now a child of the king. And you are part of the glorious church of Jesus Christ. Just one more clarification by way of introduction. When we're talking about the church, there are a couple of distinctions that need to be understood. There's the distinction of the visible and the invisible church. The visible church is what we are here this morning. We're people that are gathered in a place. But the reality, the sad reality, is that within the visible church, not everyone is truly part of the church. There are likely some here today, and you, you have not turned to Christ. You're outside of Christ. And even though you're here, you're not part of the church. And so the distinction between the, the visible and the invisible, the visible church gathers. The invisible church consists of those who are truly in Christ. There's also the distinction of the universal and the local the universal and the local. The universal church consists of all those who have turned to Christ throughout the church age from the time Christ ascended until the time he returns. That is the universal church, all those redeemed, all those for whom Christ died to redeem. But the universal church is expressed by the plan of God in local assemblies. And that's why we went to 1 Corinthians and Galatians just to see that reality. The universal church is expressed by the local gathering of believers in, in geographical locations to fulfill what Christ says. This is what the church does. And so it's important to keep those in mind and understand that when we're talking about church membership, we're focusing in on what does it mean as a believer, as someone who has turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, what does it mean to be part of a local assembly of believers? Is it biblical? Is it significant? What are the responsibilities and what are the blessings? 
And those are questions that we'll answer over the next couple of weeks. Again, the theme is that the church matters to those purchased by Christ. We're going to continue this morning by looking first at this point. Our first point this morning is the biblical basis for church membership. So we've kind of funneled down, right? We've, we've considered very broadly and briefly the, the work of Christ as he brings people to himself, makes them part of the kingdom of God, and that he's established local churches where, where those who are in Christ gather together to worship Christ, to build one another up, to be protected and to prepare for his return. So the biblical basis for church membership, and, and this answers the question, is it really that important to know who is part of the church? So a few passages we'll turn to. First, Matthew 18. Matthew 18. We're going to start with some of the more heavy passages that answer this question, but yet make the distinction very clear. So Matthew chapter 18, and again, we're establishing the biblical basis for church membership, the biblical basis for identifying those who are part of the church and those who are not part of the church. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, and let me just point out that verses 15 through 20 are surrounded by a Christ calling us to examine ourselves and Christ calling us to forgive freely. It's really important to see those, to understand those two bookends as we look here now at verse 15 in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." This is the second appearance of the word church in our New Testament. The first is Matthew 16, where Jesus says, I will build my church after Peter confesses Christ. And here Jesus is describing the process when there is uh, sin between two people. Somebody's been sinned against. You go and seek to make that right. If that doesn't happen, you bring other people in to establish the matter as witnesses. And if, there, if, if the matter is established and there still is no repentance, then you bring it before the church. And if there is still resistance before the church, then the church excludes the unrepentant sinner. And, be, and, the, and that person becomes, as a Gentile or a tax collector, someone who is outside the church. Now, if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Matthew 18, Jesus is giving instructions before the church has been established. This is in preparation for what he will establish 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we've already noted Paul is writing to, a, to the church and he's dealing with many issues. We've been reading through it the last few weeks. One of the issues in the church of Corinth is that they are tolerating an immoral person. And Paul must correct that. Look at verse 3 where he tells them what needs to happen. This cannot be tolerated. He says, verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This man has been unresponsive. He's not repenting. Paul says he's excluded. And the wording he uses, he's delivered to Satan. What does that mean? Well, he's given over to the realm that Satan energizes, to the world. He's put outside of the church. Why? So that he can experience what life is like separated from the fellowship of the people of God. So that he can experience what life is life like in, in, a, in a setting where you're committed to the world. And Paul says that needs to happen. He needs to experience the misery of being outside of Christ here in this world so that God might grant him repentance to the salvation of his soul but he needs to be put outside. Later on in this chapter, in verse 9, Paul clarifies, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world but now I am writing you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Do you see the distinction Paul is making here? Sexually immoral, greedy, drunkards, swindlers, that's part of being in the world. You're not going to leave the world but if someone dares to name the name of Christ and continues bold-faced in their sin, that person is put outside the church. You don't associate with that person. They're liars and they're hypocrites. And they're infecting the body of Christ. What we see in these passages, what we're establishing is the biblical basis for church membership. And the first point to establish that is that disobedient people are removed. So to remove disobedient people, what are they removed from? They're removed from the church. There are those that are part of the church and there are those that are not part of the church. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 5 now. 1 Timothy chapter 5. It's appropriate that as we 
consider the church and church membership, we frequently touch down in these pastoral epistles. These epistles grow on you the longer you're in the ministry. It's amazing the wisdom of God in inspiring the Scriptures. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul is giving instructions to Timothy about some practical matters in the church. In verse 9, he writes, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ and they desire to marry and they incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. What is Paul saying? Well, in the church, there are widows that had needs. And the church had a responsibility to care for those widows who were in need. And they had a list where they kept a record of the widows who qualified to be helped by the church. And so what we're seeing is that within the church, there's a recognition that there are widows that are in need. There's records being kept and those who need to be helped are identified. And we know that this is happening in the context of the church. If you look down at verse 16, as he wraps up this section, Paul says, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So again, Paul is assuming there's an identifiable body of believers who are called the church, and the church is called to care for those who are truly in need. And so he's dealing in the context of an identifiable body. He's not, in other words, to to put it negatively, he's not telling Timothy, Timothy, you, you need to go out and take care of all the widows in Ephesus. He's speaking specifically about those who are part of the church and the church's responsibility. So we've seen disobedient people are removed from the church. We see from this passage that members in need are cared for. There's a church, and within that church are members who are in need, and they are cared for by the church. We're establishing the biblical basis for church membership. Another passage, 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. As Peter concludes this epistle in chapter 5, verse 1, He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Notice the connection with the coming of Christ and the labors of the church. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Peter 
in instructing the elders, elders that are that govern churches around the diaspora. He says, you elders are responsible for the flock that is with you. Elders shepherd a flock that is locally defined. He doesn't say, you, you're no, you elders are responsible for, for, the, for this whole region or for the whole church. No, elders, you shepherd the flock that is among you. Elders shepherd a flock that is locally defined. And, and we see this again, the same concept in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We'll turn to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. The book of Revelation is written to churches. It's written to churches. It's a church document. And in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus gives specific directions to seven local churches. He gives specific directions to the pastors, to the messengers in seven local churches. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Now look at verse 8. To the angel of the church of Smyrna, write. Verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write. Verse 18. To the angel of the church of Thyatira, write. Chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Sardis, write. Chapter 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. And chapter 3, verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write. Jesus, Jesus addresses different assemblies in different locations. And he holds each local leader and assembly responsible for what's happening in their assembly. Let me show you that. Go back to chapter 2. After Jesus commends the church in Ephesus, in verse 4, He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the first love, or the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus says to Ephesus, Ephesus, you know, you've been blessed. The Apostle Paul came to you. He spent two years with you. He came back and he prayed with your elders in Acts chapter 20. Paul wrote, an epistle to you, the epistle of the Ephesians. A pastor was supplied to you, Timothy, who was instructed by Paul. You're orthodox. You get that. But you've left your first love. Ephesus, you need to repent of that. You're responsible to repent of turning away from the love that you have for Christ. And, and you're so responsible that Failure to obey my instructions will mean that I'm going to remove your usefulness as a local church. I'm going to take you out. Now you say, wait a minute, Jesus said he's going to build his church. How can he, how can he extinguish a local body? The promise that Jesus made to build his church 
is not a promise that every single local church will endure forever. It's a promise that he will continue to raise up people who will bear witness to the authority of the Scriptures and to the person of Jesus Christ, and the church as a whole will continue until he returns. But local churches are responsible to heed the warning of Christ. In Thyatira, they had a different problem. They were tolerating sexual immorality, and they were responsible for that. And all we're demonstrating here is that there are local churches, identifiable groups of people gathered in geographical locations, people that Christ has gathered together, and and they're responsible in their local assembly to respond to Christ and to deal with what's happening in their assembly. And so as we see these examples, we're establishing again the biblical basis for church membership. There are those that are part of the church, there are those that are outside of the church, and there are local churches and geographical places who are responsible to Christ. Church membership, as Pastor Don said in the first service that I attended here on staff, In January 3rd, 2021, church membership is a formal commitment to identify with a local body of believers in their doctrine and practice so as to share in the privileges and responsibilities of the local church. Scripture establishes that there are groups of people that are identified as followers of Christ that gather together in a local church and that are responsible before Christ to carry out the instructions of Christ as recorded in the Word of God. It is really important to know who is part of the church. I want to look secondly this morning at the significance of of church membership, the significance of church membership. We sought to establish the biblical basis of church membership, and now we're considering the significance of church membership. What is it that you become a part of when you join a local church? How significant is the local church? And maybe an example will will help us. I'm really thankful that I'm part of the Kroger Rewards program. It saved me hundreds of dollars in gas. And you know, we have all kinds of those consumer memberships, right? I can get gas at Kroger, or I can get gas at UDF or Speedway. And, and nobody calls me up and says, why didn't you get gas at Kroger? Right? It's a membership. It's part of convenience. It works out well both ways. You know, I buy more, more groceries at Kroger, and they give me a discount on gas. You know, it's a, it's a great little setup there. Folks, that's very different from another covenant, another relationship that I'm a part of 
And that is the marriage relationship I have with my wife. I go to my house and I spend time with my wife. And I've been doing that for the last almost 17 years. Because we made promises before God that we would live as husband and wife until death would do us part. And that is a much more significant relationship than my relationship with Kroger. Why? Well, there's one simple answer. Who invented it? God invented marriage. This is His institution. And it is weighty. We're told that when two people come together in a mysterious way, God makes them one flesh. It says God makes them one flesh. What God has put together, let no man tear apart. In the same way, and I'm, I'm setting that up to set this up. In the same way, who invented the church? Who invented the church? God did. God did. And there are certainly differences. I'm not, I'm not saying that a person has to be the member of a single local church for the entirety of their lives. I want to make that clear. There are, there are legitimate reasons where we have to move around and, and that kind of thing. I'm not, I'm not establishing that. What I'm establishing here is that God invented the church. And so when we, when we think about the church and when we have to make decisions even about our association with the church, the, the place that we look is not what I, what I want or what I'm getting or what I'm not getting. The place I look is what God has said. What has God said? What has God said about the local church? Is my local church carrying out what God has said And if so, I have a responsibility to be part of a local church that's carrying out what God has said. Because this is God's invention. This is God's design. This is the way that God protects me from the world and from the devil and from my flesh. And this is the way that God prepares me for the return of His Son. Turn to Acts 20. I referred to this a moment ago, mentioning Paul swinging by Ephesus on his way to other ministries, and he called the leaders, or he came to Miletus and called the leaders of Ephesus to meet him there. It was going to be his last personal interaction with the church of Ephesus. And in verse 28, As he begins his instruction to the elders there, he says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 
Here's the significance of church membership. The church, the church belongs to God. It's God's design. And we see in this passage first that the Holy Spirit establishes leadership for the church. You see that there in, in verse 28? Talking to the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit establishes leadership for the local church. Leadership in a local assembly does not rest on any succession plan. It does not rest on personal decisions for advancement. Qualified leadership is in place because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And there are plenty of other passages that fill that out. We don't have time to go there today. But Paul just summarizes and says to the leaders, you're here by the appointment of the Holy Spirit, a member of the triune God. This is significant. This is heavy. This is serious. He goes on to, to say, after establishing that the leadership is appointed and put in place by the Holy Spirit to oversee the church, he says, you're overseeing the church, you're caring for the church of God. You're caring for the church that doesn't belong to you, elders, to you, overseers. The church belongs to God. It's His design. He's the one that established it. Oh, this is amazing. This is amazing. God, the infinite God of the universe, He's the one that designed this entity. He's the one that designed for us to be gathered here today to, to give attention to the inspired Word of God so that we could grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is from God. Spurgeon in his Puritan Catechism answers the question, what is God? And just so we can get an understanding of, of who this is, when he says, this is the church of God, who is God? God is spirit. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. It's that God that established the church. It's that God out of his wisdom, out of his power, his power to orchestrate the whole flow of history so that the redemption for your sins was accomplished in Christ and to establish the church and, and carry on the church and allow the church to thrive for the last 2,000 years, folks. That's the power of God. He's the one that owns the church. It's significant. It's significant to be part of the church. And he goes on in this passage, the church belongs to God, which he obtained with his own blood. The Holy Spirit establishes leadership for the church. The church belongs to God, and Christ purchased the church with his blood. Outside of Christ, outside of Christ, we are cursed. We are cursed by God. To be under the curse of God means to be cut off from God. But Galatians 3.13 says this, 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ purchased the church with his precious blood. It's significant. It's significant to be part of the church. And one final passage, if you turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, establishing again the significance of the church, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul in chapter 2 has given some instructions about prayer in the church. He's laid out the qualifications of elders and deacons. And as he comes to the end of chapter 3, he writes in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. The Holy Spirit establishes leadership for the church. The church belongs to God. Christ purchased the church with his blood, and God appointed the church to hold up the truth to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And he gives this magnificent statement of Christ. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seed of angels. And in those statements, we could summarize, the church holds up the reality of Christ's work accomplished. He came, he lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again. He goes on to say, he was proclaimed among the nations. The church holds up Christ's work announced. We we announce, we proclaim to the nations the accomplished, finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's believed on then in the world as the church holds up, holds up the glorious gospel of Christ. Redemption accomplished. Redemption announced. He's believed on in the world. Christ is acknowledged. Christ is acknowledged. And how many here are gathered today because that's what happened as Christ was proclaimed even from this pulpit. You came to Christ. You acknowledged him as your Lord and your Savior. That's what the church does. And he was taken up into glory. And the implication of Christ being taken up into glory is captured for us in Acts chapter 1 when the angel tells the disciples, why are you standing here looking in the same way you saw him go, he will return. And so the church is the pillar and buttress of the, church, of the truth as we anticipate his return. We hold up the truth. What is the truth? The truth is Christ's work accomplished. The truth is Christ's work announced. The truth is Christ's work acknowledged. And the truth is Christ's return anticipated. This is why the church is significant. Because it holds up Christ. It holds forth Christ as preeminent above all things. 
And when we gather together, when we become members of the local expression of God's redemptive work through Christ, we're testifying to the amazing grace of God who took wretches who were dead in trespasses and sin, wretches who were under the wrath of God, and he redeemed us, and he brings us together from all kinds of backgrounds with all kinds of different personalities, and he builds us into a mature body where we interact with one another with love and tenderness and forgiveness, and we hold forth the glory of God, of the transforming power of Jesus Christ, of the work of the Spirit of God in our lives to a dead world, to a dark world who needs the gospel proclaimed, and Jesus established the church to do that. The church is like no other entity. God ordained the church to display His truth amid ever-increasing darkness and confusion. And so when you join a church that is committed to trumpeting the glory of Christ, to amplifying His preeminence, you are part of something that is not only bigger than you, but it's not about you at all. It's about Christ. Paul said, we preach not ourselves, but we preach Christ. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us through Christ our Savior. We thank you that Christ lives that He is raised up, preeminent over all things, over all authorities, and over all powers for the church. And, O Lord God, we look forward, we look forward to the return of Christ, and we pray, we pray that You would magnify Christ to us today. We pray that You would magnify the glorious institution of the church as laid out in Your Word We pray that you would continue to work in us to will and to do according to your good pleasure as we're filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks to the Father for all things in Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.